Hello and welcome to another College of Optometrists podcast with me, Martin Cordner, Head of Research at the College. And me, Daniel Hardiman-McCartney, Clinical Advisor at the College. Well, Daniel, as we record, we've been enjoying our new haircuts and socially distanced pub visits, but we're about to start socialising with no more than five other people by act of law. Uh, if I had more than five other friends, this would be an issue. Uh, how have you been? Um, I've been good. Fortunately, I don't have more than five other friends, so so the law won't affect me. But but yeah, been well. Summer's over. Autumn's here already for Amber Phase recovery period. All systems go. Intriguing. Yeah, we've had the summer at home, which wasn't too bad in London, but did get a bit hot. So now we're about to have autumn working from home. Uh, at least I get to wear woollier jumpers and then have arguments with my partner about whether we should put the heating on and stuff like that. So that's going to be fun. Well, the, the question is, woolly hats and face masks, balaclavas and face masks, scarves mm-hmm. and face masks. There, mm-hmm. there, there, there's a lot of, um, I, I, I guess, new territory to cover with autumnal wear and cold weather and, and COVID-19. Yes. I think, I mean, you are the college's official fashion correspondent, right? Yeah, that's that's right. That's what I signed up for at the so, top. So this is now the college's fashion podcast as well. We definitely definitely going to make that feature yeah no autumn winter 2020 the the face masks are in style gloves and aprons are out and um right. and, and fluid resistant face masks type 2 are in right okay you heard it here first so uh, today topically enough uh, we're bringing you my chat with professor john lawrenson of city university of london about the editorial covid19 and the eye uh, published in the july issue of opo Uh, It was written by John and Professor Roger Buckley, Professor Emeritus of Ocular Medicine at Anglia Ruskin University, and it provides a systematic review of the evidence relating to COVID-19 and the eye, as well as background, methods of transmission, and some practice implications. We spoke about all of that. So, Daniel, you have been back in practice, is that right? Yep, no, I've been back in practice. Um, Not a lot, but I've had a number of clinics in practice, and it's tough. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's tough in practice. The PPE is tough. Patient expectations are tough. Everything about what you're doing is turned upside down on its head. Um, mm. it, it's it's a strange situation. So um, it, it's tough times to be a clinician. The, you know, I had a patient, in fact, break down in front of me because oh, they, wow. they, they were in the shielded category before August and then they weren't in the shielded category after August and they just didn't know what to do. They didn't know if they should be there. Yeah. They were worried about the consultation. Um it's it's tough times. But the important thing is, you, you know, optometrists everywhere working in these really tough conditions, they're open for business, they're supporting the public, they're saving sight, because, you know, eye care has to go on, regardless of what's happening um, everywhere else. Yes, it must be very tough for those patients, because it's all very well someone saying you should be shielding or not shielding, but I should imagine that, you know, they don't feel very different from one day to the next, you know, there wasn't a transition point at which they feel much better maybe than they did before i mean you were talking there about patients attitudes and actions and stuff so you've had people who've been very cautious have you had people who've been much the other way you've been sort of huffing and puffing about the changes well before i went into practice um one of my friends in practice said daniel you'll be surprised people are completely polarized and and it's absolutely the case you have people come in the room you know they're not wearing a face covering they refuse to wear a face covering they're you know really blasé you know kind of you know, coffee in hand. They hug you, they kiss yeah, you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As per well, usual. That, yeah. That, that, that's right. In, in, indeed, um, with not a care in the world. And, and then other people who, who who are on the doorstep almost refusing to come into the, 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 the clinic because they're so worried about mm. it. So completely polarised. Um, 
yeah, interesting times. Yeah. Have there been points at which you yourself have been sort of unsure what to do, either with, with like a test uh, or where something has happened and you're like, right, do we stop now? Does this need to, to be decontaminated? Have there been occasions like that? I think it's fair to say in every clinic, in with every patient, that, that there's always some, you know, new permanent permutation or combination of, of thing where you've got to think what's the right way to do this or, or what's the right yeah r- what's the right challenge and, and a lot of the time you know you do have to just apply your professional judgment and think on on your feet and just act in the patient's best interests and and do the best you can with what you've got at that point in time yeah so they say would you like to go to dinner and you say i'm really sorry i'm in a relationship we can't i just can't do that would you like to leave? It's that. It's that sort of thing. Well, the, yeah, that, that, that that's a common occurrence. That's that, a that, standard that, that, standard practice. That's right. Uh, there's advantages as well. Like for example, you know, bad patient breath is much less of a problem these days because of the, <laughs> right, the yeah. enlarged patient shit that uh, slit <laughs> slit lamp shield, um, yes. which is which is up. Um, the face coverings, you, you know, garlic breath, not a problem. So it's not all bad. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is a point I think in. Um, I think in the editorial where it says something along the lines of we advise against casual chat at the slit lamp. Uh, and I thought, I wonder if that was just something that, you know, a lot of optometrists might prefer generally. Yeah, slit uh, lamp. Pre-pandemic or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, slit lamp, small talk. Slit lamp, small talk. <laughs> that, that should clearly be a feature in this podcast. <laughs> we should come back to that. So John talked us through the editorial, uh, but if you want to go straight to the source, uh, then you can head to the college website at the link in the show notes and read it for yourself. It is quite short, and I think some of the background is handy uh, for personal knowledge, personal information, uh, personal life, as well as professional life. But if you want the audiobook version, then here it is. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Good to talk to you. So we're here to talk about the editorial that you wrote uh, about COVID-19 for OPO, but just what was your initial experience of COVID-19? I mean, everyone's probably got their own stories, but how did it affect your work as a university professor in particular? Um, I remember sort of back in early March, I was about to head off to a conference in in Austria, in in Vienna, Mm. um, and within about three days, that was uh, cancelled. Um, I think uh, uh, Austria went into lockdown probably about a week before uh, we did. And so they uh, had a restriction on the number of people that could uh, group uh, together. So that was the first uh, impact. Yeah. And I think a week later, we'd scheduled a, a PhD defense viva for my, uh, for my student. And the examiners were all um, ready to, uh, to come to city to examine him and that had to be done by um, by Zoom in the end. I think it was the first one we ran right, in yeah. the uh, university, yeah. so it was a bit of a a bit of a test. Um, and obviously, the main issue is with having to reconfigure undergraduate uh, assessments because obviously there was neither any face to face teaching, or students couldn't come into the uh, university to take the invigilated assessments as would normally be the case. So it was very busy uh, yeah. early on. But I think once that settled down, I think it was really trying to just resume normal um, academic activities. Yeah, it was, it was strange because I've always continued to work in practice and I can mm. see that uh, impacted, I'm sure, on most people uh, that will be uh, listening uh, to this. But uh, having a, a break from uh, practice, it was probably about uh, three months, certainly going back into it. Uh, that's probably the longest break I've ever had of uh, not practicing as an optometrist so you're back practicing some now are you 
Yeah, it started back in July. And no doubt a great colleague to answer everyone's uh, COVID-related questions as we'll, <laughs> as we'll come on to. So have you had any previous experience of summarising evidence on something as new as COVID-19 before? How useful is research on the previous coronaviruses as some sort of starting point? It's a really good question, Mars. And ordinarily, you know, the process would be that you would be, um, you know, systematically bringing together uh, evidence that really has been accrued over quite a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, this was obviously very different. You mm. know, if you think about, you know, I, certainly the work on uh, coronaviruses probably was of interest to uh, virologists, but, uh, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the number of uh, publications on um, coronaviruses wasn't sort of massive, really. There'd obviously been a, a bit of a uh, of an increase at the time of, of previous kind of epidemics, you know, the SARS and the MERS epidemics. So there was obviously uh, a renewed interest at, the, at those points, but that kind of quickly uh, waned. So we were able to use the previous literature really just to provide a little bit of contextual information about the kind of biology of coronaviruses, but we couldn't really find very much about ophthalmic manifestations from the previous uh, literature, which was really one of the questions we tried to answer. So we were very much reliant on the um, more recently published um, literature. And in fact, interestingly, of our, of our 36 cited uh, publications in the, um, in the editorial, I think 30 of them uh, had been published in 2020. Right. And uh, clearly that would be extremely unusual. Yes. Yeah, so at the time that you were writing the editorial, there really wasn't much. And how did you go about finding it? Did you do what you would normally do, or was there yeah. a process? Or well, it's interesting. So I think, let's say prior to this, uh, to the current uh, pandemic, there was very little. But what's very interesting is just in the early part of the year, there had been almost an exponential increase mm. in the number of COVID um, nineteen related uh, publications. Now, interestingly. Many of those had yet to go through uh, peer reviews, so they were held on these kind of preprint um, servers. A lot of the literature, as you might imagine early on, was written in uh, Chinese. So yeah. I think we still had something like 7,000 papers that had been published at that point right, on okay. COVID. So if you yeah. did a, a search, for example, just using COVID-19 as a keyword, we are probably in when we were doing the uh, literature review, which is probably at the end of April, we probably would have had about 7,000 uh, hits. I think if you repeated that now, it would probably mm. be over 40,000, I suspect. Yeah, sure. So it's a, an illustration as to just how quickly, um, you know, the um, papers were, were coming out. And obviously that presented a real challenge because in order for it still to be topical, we needed to do it quite quickly. So we had the task of trying to, screen through um, those 7,000 papers. But we were very lucky in that sense in the, that we, um, just through my uh, Cochrane uh, network, we were able to uh, work with a group that was really trying to assimilate all of the papers that were related to eyes and vision from that big um, COVID database. And they worked using these kind of uh, machine learning to do that. Okay. So normally you would just be, if, if I was doing this normally, I'd just be screening through titles and abstracts. And that's quite a, a time consuming uh, process. Um, and to do that across 
you know, 7,000 papers looking for those that, uh, you know, would have been tricky. But we were able to condense the 7,000 probably down to less than 200 using this uh, machine learning classifier. So it made the task certainly a lot easier. Mm. So the preliminary reports that you found that were part of the evidence base, they're, they're yet to be certified by peer review. So how do you feel about that sort of evidence? Obviously, this is a unique sort of case, but how do you feel about that generally? And how does that affect the process that you then go through in, in considering that evidence? How do you rate it? Well, it's, it's certainly tricky. I, I, certainly, there has been a, a real increase on the, on the number of these uh, pre-print servers. And uh, as you know, the, at that stage, they haven't been through uh, peer review, although a number of them, them claim to adopt some kind of vetting process. I see, right. Which is probably quite a, like a low-level uh, yeah. peer review before they get onto that. But certainly, they haven't gone through the rigorous uh, peer review process. And I guess... It partly depends on what um, your research question is. I think we're very lucky in a sense because we were largely looking at kind of incidence data. We were trying to get a feel for how common uh, ophthalmic manifestations were of COVID-19. So that would be largely based on uh, on case reports, mm. case series. And that's sort of really quite low tech and it's relatively easy to, you know, because, you know, you could you know, just look at the number of uh, people and look at case definitions and things. So it's relatively sure. easy to do that. It'd obviously be more difficult if you're looking at intervention studies or looking at um, yeah, yeah. Uh, new treatments, for example, for COVID-19. Uh, I was reading the other day that the um, this uh, recovery trial that we've heard a lot about having impact already on the way that patients are being managed, that um, uh, was initially published on a a preprint uh, server it's now been published in the New England Journal of Medicine but they um, that changed practice whilst it was still on the preprint uh, server wow. interestingly and was integrated into guidelines and it was partly because of the um, significance of the finding that it in terms of reducing mortality that you know they wanted that to get into practices as quickly as possible but certainly there's been a loss of criticism of that the process, you know, in the interest of trying to get information out there, it does come at a cost. Yes, I suppose in this case in particular, I suppose in many cases, but I think this is possibly the most obvious one. It's always a balance between the evidence being good enough and rigorous enough, maybe repeated, uh, and if it shows good to try and implement that into practice. And this is an example where I think the, the, the interest in speed is probably extremely uh, great compared to some other scenarios. Yeah, and I think the other good thing, I think most of the uh, journals made all of the COVID-related publications open access. Mm. And that was obviously very beneficial. You know, I think it's yeah. particularly true in kind of low and middle-income countries where they don't necessarily have access because most of these um, publishers adopt these paywalls that you have to pay to get yeah. access to the uh, papers. And I think that was, you know, a really good decision to, uh, to make. So just to cover um, some really interesting and useful information that I think the, the editorial covers or very interesting and useful to me anyway, because I don't think I knew it, uh, is that seven coronaviruses have been confirmed as being able to infect humans. Four of those cause 15% of colds and some pneumonia, and the other three, uh, including uh, COVID-19, which is a third of them, the other being SARS and MERS, 
which is uh, South Asian respiratory syndrome and Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. Yes. Yeah, yeah those right. were kind of previous, um, yeah, uh, okay. not, not pandemics, but epidemics. Um, right, yeah, okay. And, and COVID-19 is the third, uh, and they can all result in life-threatening respiratory failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do we currently know about viral load? Viral load's a term that we've heard a bit. What do we, do we know much about how much of a viral load is necessary to produce an infection of, of, of these oh, diseases, which are more worrying? Yeah, sadly not. I mean, I don't think the minimum infectious death for COVID-19 has been established. I think most of what we assume has just been extrapolated from the uh, influenza. But it is thought to be really quite a small amount of viral load is required to initiate uh, an infection. Mm. Um, obviously, it's a respiratory virus, so um, the viral load from inhaling the virus is, is significantly less to initiate an infection compared to a viral load that might um, happen via contact through contaminated surfaces, for example. Sure. So this is where we're hearing things about super spreaders, presumably, is because yeah. people don't need much of it. So if there's someone around a lot of people, they can infect a lot of people oh. quite quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and given the fact that, you know, you know, the virus can potentially stay in these kind of droplets for quite a significant amount of uh, time. So how much do we know then about COVID-19's potential ocular effects? Uh, if you can say briefly what we might know about animals, uh, the effect on animals and then on humans. Yeah, yeah uh, so that was one of our primary um, research questions yeah. uh, in our review. So, um, you know, we were interested, I mean, altogether there's something like 40 coronaviruses, but they're largely pathogens of, uh, of animals. So, mm -hmm. you know, so there was a literature that was in the animal literature. There was also um, a small literature in terms of ophthalmic manifestations of SARS and uh, MERS, but that literature was suggesting that, you know, those two um, previous um, uh, novel coronaviruses were not associated with significant ocular manifestations. So we more or less mm -hmm. knew that and potentially could therefore have predicted what we found for uh, COVID-19. But there had been kind of a body of work in animals to show that the eye can be um, infected and, and certainly you know, demonstrate, it's been demonstrated that uh, most uh, ocular tissues from the front uh, to the back um, can um, be impacted by uh, coronaviruses. So, so that, you know, there was a literature there. So, um, mm -hmm. so one of our main tasks really was to, and again, we were largely based on those early uh, case reports um, to see what the uh, prevalence of ocular manifestations were for this novel coronavirus. And so what were they, uh, in summary, sort of the, the main ocular effects on humans of COVID-19? So one of the things we'd, we'd assumed from the previous literature is that um, one of the most likely uh, impacts would be conjunctivitis, you know, mm. given the uh, exposure of the uh, ocular surface of the virus, just uh, which would all be the, also be the case for the respiratory uh, mucosa. So one of the first things we looked for was to try to get some feel for the uh, prevalence of conjunctivitis. Mm -hmm. The problem really, and, and that's why ultimately we uh, decided statistically to combine literature together, we looked at the um, estimates from case studies and the range was somewhere uh, from 1% to 30%. And clearly that kind of range is not particularly instructive when you're sure. trying to come up with, a, with an estimate 
Um, and so what we ended up doing, which was extremely time consuming, is to, at that point, uh, and I think our cut point was the uh, 30th of April, I think is when we uh, completed um, our uh, search and effectively when the clock uh, starts. So we didn't really report anything subsequent to that. But what we effectively then did was went through and looked at the um, prevalence of conjunctivitis and the studies that have been published up to that point and then we statistically combined them and that's where we came up with a, a percentage of about four percent that we would um, uh, suppose that it's a relatively rare manifestation of, uh, of COVID-19 and, uh, and I think that information is valuable because I know that initial 30 percent was widely uh, reported mm-hmm. and obviously as time goes forward and the numbers uh, um, of reports increase we'll get um, a more accurate uh, figure, but there's nothing I've read subsequent to to our publication that is suggesting that it's anything greater than that. Right. How does that compare to um, the prevalence of conjunctivitis caused by other conditions? Is it is conjunctivitis caused by other sort of a uh, respiratory uh, related things or colds or anything like that? Oh, certainly that's true. It, you know, it's a, it's a common manifestation of adenovirus, for example. Right. Yeah, and um, um, it was interesting that we did find a case study of one of the corona, you mentioned earlier about coronaviruses mm-hmm. being responsible for 15% of, uh, of colds. And there was one particular case report, uh, a coronavirus that's um, referred to as NL63. And there was a paper that had published um, on a series of children who'd been hospitalized with this. So it was a very oh, severe, wow. uh, but upper respiratory tract uh, infection sufficiently for those children to be hospitalized. And I think they reported conjunctivitis in about 17% right. of that particular cohort. So, mm-hmm. so it was almost those kind of early reports that made us think that maybe it could be more than that. But certainly, right. you know, when we uh, combined that, we probably, you know, we had probably data on maybe about a thousand patients at that point. Mm. But interestingly, and I think this, um, you know, in terms of the, the source of the data, most of those uh, early reports were from hospitalized patients. So obviously mm. reports on people with the most severe manifestation yes, right. of the yes. uh, disease. Um, and you therefore might kind of, you know, assume that those people with a milder form of the disease are possibly less likely to develop uh, ocular uh, infection. So uh, we don't yet have the data on the full spectrum of the disease. That um, um, four, three to four percent kind of figure mainly comes from people with, uh, with severe disease. Presumably it must be slightly difficult to get figures because a lot of the people who might have had something quite possibly wouldn't have gone to a medical professional because obviously there was a lockdown at the time. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And there are several um, isolated reports of um, conjunctivitis being the the kind of first, and in some cases, the only manifestation of the uh, disease. But I think we still feel that that's kind of relatively rare compared to other clinical features of the disease. Mm-hmm. So we've all been told many, many times and probably should continue to follow the advice uh, that we shouldn't touch our mouth, our nose, indeed our eyes uh, for fear of transmission of the virus and infection. Uh, how does a mechanism work to be infected through the eyes? Is it through the ocular surface or is it through some other way? Yeah, that, well, that's, that's an interesting question. In fact, that was our uh, kind of second main objective. Mm-hmm. of the uh, review. We were both looking at two things really. One is the 
the eyes a potential source of, uh, of infection, a source of transmission of the uh, virus, but also we were interested in the infectivity of the tears. So we were going to see if we can um, um, assimilate data on the, uh, uh, the likelihood that the tears were infected with the uh, virus. If we take that question first, mm. um, again, the data at the time was quite uh, limited. But uh, again, we performed another kind of meta-analysis where we kind of grouped um, all of the studies we identified. And again, they were based on hospital patients. And these are patients where, as well as being positive for the, uh, for the virus through a kind of a nasal and a throat swab, they either took a clear sample or they um, took a conjunctival uh, swab. Um, and um, even in those patients that were positive for the virus, it was only a relatively small percentage of them that uh, they could isolate the virus in years. I think it was about 3%. Uh, so again, that's uh, quite low. So you can't dismiss that mm. as, uh, mm. as, a, as a route. So, so the implication there is that even if someone is infected with the uh, virus, there's no guarantee that uh, virus will be in the tears. But it doesn't uh, mean that the eye can't therefore be a route by which people can acquire the uh, the virus. Um, I think we know quite a lot about the kind of mechanism. Obviously, the virus initially has to bind to um, to a cell, and um, and we know the receptor that uh, is responsible for that uh, binding, and the eye certainly expresses that uh, uh, receptor. But it needs another kind of couple of enzymes in order to kind of initiate the process of transit through the uh, ocular surface. And it's currently not clear whether that uh, is happening to any great extent, but we know that uh, the tears drain into the nasopharynx where the, that mechanism is, um, is present and that's the way in which uh, we would acquire these kind of respiratory type uh, viruses. So it's assumed that even if there had been contact of the ocular surface and the presence of virus in the tears, it tends to sort of drain with the tears and then we can acquire the infection through, uh, through that route. And that's currently the kind of, you know, kind of working um, hypothesis and it's the basis of eye protection really. And whilst, you know, the, um, I think I, I read a, a paper that was published in The Lancet recently and it was a, a systematic review looking at the impact of different types of of PPE on, on protection. And I think they showed something like a 10% absolute risk reduction of acquiring the infection through the use of a face shield or, or goggles. But obviously most of the protection is going to come through uh, through the using a mask. Of course, we've heard a lot about that. Yes. So rather than it being sort of through the ocular surface, it's more the sort of eyes fluid yeah. dynamics that cause it maybe to become infected in that way. Yeah, it's not to say that it can't happen, uh, mm. you know, um, infection being transmitted across the conjunctiva, but it's much more likely to happen through that uh, um, kind of tear film, kind of nasal uh, route. Right. So there are many different figures thrown around that we've heard for how long the virus can last on various household surfaces. I don't know about you, but when we get post uh, we sometimes sort of leave it for about four days or something and say, just yeah. don't go near it and it'll be fine. Uh, you know, can you tell us what we currently know about uh, the, the, the length of time that it's thought it can last on various surfaces? Well, well there's still a lot of, of uncertainty about this. I mean, they can, you know, this is largely done through 
um, experiments where they, um, can, you know, the kind of in vitro type of experiments where they, you know, do the uh, analysis in kind of laboratory conditions, trying to simulate mm. what's happening in the real real world. And there have been a number of uh, publications of, uh, of of how long things last on particular uh, uh, surfaces. We know that the virus survives longer on paper and cardboard than it would on plastic and stainless steel, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you could interpret that in one of two ways. You could say, well, what is the, the half-life, you know, so that, um, you know, following contact with the surface, there's then an exponential decline, and often they then report, you know, how long it takes for a 50% for a reduction in viral load and I think the data on that is is probably on surfaces like plastic and, and stainless steel about six or seven hours to mm. reduce by 50% but you know potentially could be um, you know, sort of several days to completely eradicate uh, the, right. uh, the virus but uh, it really emphasizes the importance of, of disinfecting um, frequently touched uh, surfaces. I mean, like you, I think initially we were very careful at sort of decontaminating more or less everything that came in uh, to the house. I must say that we're probably not quite so um, um, so good now. We do yeah. tend to kind of, like you, leave things um, for a period of uh, time. But certainly there is a, a risk, but compared to the risk of transmission through the air, um, you know, it would be uh, very much less. Mm. I suppose it's difficult as well, given that if we still don't know what viral load is required to infect, yeah. then, you know, a 50% reduction is good, but is that enough, yeah. I suppose, without yeah. that bit of the puzzle, we, we can't be sure. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, at the moment, we're kind of operating in a little bit of an evidence vacuum. And so certainly as far as the PP is concerned, it's much better to be kind of overcautious than, mm. uh, than undercautious, of course. Yeah. When you talked about simulating in the real world, I had an image of researchers sort of simulating buying a pint of milk in a shop. <laughs> sort of do it again. You didn't, you didn't do it right. Do it again. The information that we currently know then about um, the types of surfaces, uh, you know, that, that it lasts on, how does that affect the types of instruments optometrists typically use in practice and what, which ones maybe they might uh, be better to use than others or how, that, how they should think about disinfecting them and things like that? I think, you know, just in terms of, of our general infection control advice, there's been a big emphasis on the use of disposable instruments for a long time, of course, certainly. Mm. Um, disposable uh, uh, prisms for tonometers, for example, they've been around for, uh, for a long time rather than re, uh, reusable uh, prisms. Um, things, uh, devices that uh, it needs contact, uh, things like eye care tonometers where you're replacing the probe for every uh, patient, those kind of things have been around uh, for a long time. It obviously is more difficult when people are using expensive lenses like gonioscopes or mm. uh, ultrasound uh, probes that are obviously more difficult to, uh, to, to disinfect. So I think the advice would be to use disposable instruments whenever uh, possible and then to use recommended uh, disinfecting processes for those things that actually contact uh, the ocular surface. The review outlines administrative and environmental controls for practitioners in this new environment. Can you talk a little bit about them, including anything more that you wanted to say about personal protective equipment? Yeah, we, we're in a difficult position. So remember, we were writing this in, uh, in May, mm. um, and a, a lot of 
professional bodies, including the uh, college, were still in the process of developing uh, guidance at that point, largely informed by, you know, the kind of information that was coming out of, of Public Health England and other um, and other kind of groups. Um, so I think we wanted to be not too prescriptive at that stage, for want of a better word. And I sure. think we largely then included uh, links to um, optometric professional organisations. Remember, OPO is an international journal, so we were including yep. links to stuff that the college were putting on the college website that was certainly changing by the week uh, at the point uh, that we were uh, writing it. So we didn't want to be kind of too definitive at that point in terms of what the guidance was at that point in time, but say that guidance is available. And we did much the same for you know the American Academy of Optometry that had some good resources on their website and um, you know the Australian uh, professional uh, bodies, Optometry Australia's. Um, mm -hmm. You know, things haven't really changed significantly probably since uh, late May in terms of the kind of general advice in terms of um, PPE. And, it, and it, you know, it's just reflecting current uh, college uh, guidance. Certainly my experience in, uh, in practice is that is, is being operationalized very well, mm. you know, in terms of slit lamp shields, for example, uh, the availability of, uh, of PPE in, in community practice, both sort of aprons and, uh, and masks. So do you think any of the protective measures, um, you know, that have, that have come in and some of the changes maybe to how uh, practice is done will persist post-pandemic based on their ability to cut down, you know, obviously if they cut down this disease, they could cut down other diseases. So, you know, the potential for air pathotonometry to generate aerosols has been known about for quite a long time. Um, yeah. And so are there, are there other things that you think it will be like, well, we shouldn't do this because there's a potential for disease sort of full stop? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think the question of, of, um, of air puffetonometry is interesting. You are right that there's, there was some early work looking at the ability of air puffetonometers to generate aerosols. But I think the one paper, and, and we cited this in our uh, editorial, it was published in the early 90s. And people will probably remember the types of non-contact uh, tonometers that were available at the time and certainly the, um, the the force of air that was generated was significantly greater than the more uh, modern, modern ones and I noticed sure. um, uh, recently that both um, our college and the Royal College of Ophthalmologists now have a position on uh, non-contact tonometry to say that it would be uh, low risk although it's obviously to between patients to sterilize the instrument and to um, and to puff the I think a few times to kind of dispel any um, any kind of material that's 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 in there. So I, I think probably the the risk of non-contact tonometry is 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 probably low. Um, it's difficult to quite know how long we've got to live with this. I don't think anyone really knows that. And probably yeah. you know, in truth, until we have an effective uh, vaccine, I think um, current measures are going to be in in place. But you know, I, I do think that things will change as a result of this. You know, I think both in terms of our general um, working practices, as we were discussing earlier, but also that practice will, uh, will change. So I think it will have probably positive effects as well as the obvious negative effects that it's had so far. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one positive we could get is that, I'll start with a negative, <laughs> is the fact that it seems <laughs> unlikely that this will be the last pandemic that we will face. Um, because yeah. it seems apparently yeah. likely because of the various forces in the world that there will be others. And you would hope that at the very least, this would mean that we've had a practice in how you uh, go about 
being an eye care professional in a way which it, which works in this environment and hopefully that can be deferred to with in, in the future as well bearing in mind that diseases will be different but at least will have had a trial run as it were yeah I, th- I think that's right certainly in terms of ophthalmic service delivery that you know because things have just changed so radically over the last um, uh, few months mm. certainly the um, involvement of uh, of optometrists you know in terms of you know when they close the um, um, ophthalmic uh, outpatient departments and then they were just seeing emergent emergency patients I think optometrists were really able to kind of step up really during mm. that uh, process and really kind of prove their uh, worth and hopefully that you know going forward uh, is realized so, so I suspect there'll be lots of changes in terms of how we uh, deliver ophthalmic uh, services a lot of that will depend on kind of audit in terms of, you know, because it's very difficult to know what the true impact uh, uh, was of that, um, those processes, um, you know, that were operating during lockdown. So I suspect that data mm. will start to come out, um, you know, and if it's really showing that it didn't really have, a, you know, a great uh, impact, you know, thinking about things like, you know, impact on, on kind of follow-up times and how, um outpatient services are uh, uh, need to be reconfigured we hear all the time about how you know uh, patient appointments are really being delayed because they don't really have the capacity in the uh, mm-hmm. system you know spending a lot of time on relatively low risk activity which then has a uh, effect you know on those patients that, that need more frequent uh, appointments so um, I think that's probably where we'll see a lot of the changes are probably also see much more kind of telemedicine um, yes. that seems to have been operating extremely well during um, during the the lockdown um, so there's no reason why those kind of services couldn't uh, continue do you know of notable additional evidence then things that you are particularly notable i know you sort of provided some of that as we've gone along but is there anything that you really could note since the uh, editorial was published uh, no. that we're now aware of that adds to the adds to the questions or changes the changes the answers to the questions not really. I, th- I think a lot of it has been more confirmatory. I, I haven't seen mm. any evidence to suggest that ophthalmic manifestations are more common than than w- was was certainly our view at the time that we uh, that, that we wrote the review. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a little bit more more work about um, the possibility of, of of transmission of the virus through the through the conjunctiva, but I still think it's regarded as relatively low risk compared mm-hmm. to other ways of, of acquiring the infection across the kind of respiratory uh, mucosa. The uh, BCLA now are now starting to develop guidance on uh, contact lenses mm-hmm. um, and, and how sort of contact lens practices at one time, you know, there's conflicting evidence about, about risks associated with, uh, with contact lenses. And I think now people have a much more sensible approach around risk both in terms of you know patients acquiring um, the infection or, or through risk uh, through contact lens um, uh, practitioners acquiring mm-hmm. infection through their clinical uh, activity. Well it's good to know then that the uh, editorial seems to be still <laughs> very much worth a read that's yeah. good, good stuff. I, I um, mean I think it probably will take some time really for, for this data to come out so I, th- I think mm. we'd say that our data was current as of the end of April, so we've still got May, June, July, maybe we're only looking at kind of three months down the line. I mm. think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, if in a year or two years time we can then look back, it's possible that at that point some of our uh, 
uh, our views have changed and it's just possible that new evidence may well come to light over that period of time. Yeah, there'll be plenty to keep you busy, not to worry. <laughs> so, uh, talking of which, uh, so how do City plan to try and get back to supporting research sort of in, in, the, in the ways that they used to? Is that possible now in the, in the post-lockdown world? It is. I mean, I mean, certainly we've been able to support our research students um, well, certainly using these kind of forums for, uh, for research mm. uh, supervision that has worked uh, very well, either through uh, Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, which tends to be the preferred uh, system the university is using and then kind of enabling file sharing and things. Um, obviously, lab-based uh, research is able to be initiated much quicker because obviously there are no kind of um, real implications there in terms of risk. Our, our patient-facing research has taken us longer to get back up and running because obviously mm. we have to redo things like risk uh, assessment. So those um, have been done and I think we're in the process of just restarting those projects mm. I'm involved with and I'm sure others uh, where we're collaborating with, uh, with NHS uh, trusts. All of those uh, trials and research studies have now um, restarted. So things are starting up. But, uh, but certainly, you know, as we're doing for our uh, open uh, clinic at, um, at City, you know, we're having to kind of consider all of the implications in terms of, uh, of PPE. So there's a lot of uh, work uh, to be done there still, I think. Yes, uh, I think there's a lot of work still to be done is quite a good way to end. <laughs> so, yes, great. Thanks so much then, John. Uh, that's been really helpful. Thank you very much for talking yeah. to us. Good to talk to you, Martin. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much to John for his time in walking us through the OPO editorial and indeed to him and Roger for writing it. If you're looking for the latest updates or guidance on all things COVID, then head to the college website or watch our social media channels. What John also left out uh, of that discussion is that subscribing to the podcast and or giving it five stars is protective against the effects of COVID-19. Uh, but he left that out because it isn't true. So that seems fair enough. Fake news. So that's it from us this time. Thank you for listening and speak again soon. Mm-hmm.